still have your Bibles, we are going to be, uh, as BJ read, we're going to be in Romans chapter 11. We are continuing our study uh, through the book of Romans. And uh, in chapter 11, one of the things, if you read uh, this chapter, this chapter is massive. Uh, and, and it's massive for at least, hear those words, it's massive for at least two reasons. One of the reasons that this chapter is massive is because it gives us um, a, a peek, a glimpse into salvation history. Um, one of the things that's going on here in the text is Paul is speaking prophetically about what is going to happen in the future in salvation history, in the salvation plan. And there are many implications for this. Um, one implication is, is evangelism and what we should think about evangelism and how we should do evangelism and who we should do evangelism uh, amongst. Um, and we will talk about that more in the, in the days and weeks ahead. Another huge implication um, of this chapter and another thing that we see that just jumps off the pages to us is that we see that God has a plan. We begin to see, hopefully by this point in the book of Romans, we begin to really understand how big this God that we serve is. And when we sing to this God, and when some of the songs we sung this morning, that we serve a God that is way beyond us and is above us. And we see um, His character in this chapter. And when we truly begin to see and understand God's character, it should build in us confidence. If you were with us last week, uh, one of the main points that I wanted to get across to you was is that uh, we ought to be and we can hope in God. That's the only true place that we can place our trust is in God, the God of the Scripture. And that even when uh, plans seem to fail, even when it seems like His promises are not coming true, we are to trust in Him and to hope in God because His plans are will come true. This week, we're going to kind of continue in that theme, except we're going to, the, the, the kind of caveat that we're going to see in this is that God's plan is true. We can hope in God because He has a purpose. He is purposing history. That God is in control and He is purposing history. And that He's at work even when it seems like His plan has failed. And so I want to ask a question this morning. And the question I want to ask as we begin, because I want you to understand with me, is that is this application, is this point legitimate? What I mean by that is that good preaching, uh, what it does is it brings out the intention of the author of the text. And so if, if you are under uh, my preaching, Gary would never do this. I'm the one you've got to watch out for. Um, but if, if our... If, if my teaching, or if you're hearing a pastor, if you're hearing teaching, and the point is not the intention of the text, so in other words, if they're twisting things around, then you need to reject that, or you need to think more deeply about that, because our job as a proclaimer of the Word is to proclaim what is in the text. And so I asked the question, and, and hopefully you're asking the question, well, you know, Lewis, yeah, I mean, it's talking about it's talking about Israel, it's talking about the Gentiles, it's talking about what's going to happen. Is that the point of the text? And so I want to say, yes, it is. 
And so I want you to go with me to the end of the chapter and see where Paul draws the same conclusion that I'm drawing. Uh, and then I want to I, I let you know kind of where we're going in the weeks and months ahead. And so if you look at the end of this chapter, in chapter 11, and look at verse 33. Paul ends this section with what's called a doxology. And, and look at how he ends this chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unfathomable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor or who has first given to Him that He might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then notice the first verse. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, uh, sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so where Paul is going is he is going in chapter 12 to, based on what you have heard thus far in this letter, lay your life down. This is the response to the truths of this letter. And, and just before then, at the end of chapter 11 in this doxology, we get the foundation and the basis for why we can do that because we serve a God who is massive, who that we can hope in, and whose promises never fail. And even when our eyes fail us, who are we to counsel God? What is best for us and our responsibility is to hope in Him and trust Him through life's circumstances. So this is how... I feel like these points of, of application, I feel like this is what Paul is intending for us to know. And so I want you to keep this in mind, that this is where we're going today um, as we work through this text. And there are, this, this text can be a little difficult to work through, uh, so just uh, bear with me and, and follow along. But I want to begin, last week I didn't finish my last point. If you were with us last week, we were trying to cover the first 11 verses and uh, there were five things that I wanted to point out to you. And uh, the question was asked, has God's word failed? And we ran through uh, the first four. We'll pick up the fifth and transition into this week's uh, section of Scripture. But the first is, no, God's work hasn't failed, meaning that God hasn't rejected his people, the Israelites. Uh, and he said, because he's an Israelite. So Paul says, it hasn't failed because I'm an Israelite. The second thing we saw from last week is that historically... Israel has always rejected the Messiah. So God has not failed Israel in this modern day when Paul was writing because the Israelites were rejecting Jesus because Paul said they have always, by and large, rejected Jesus. The third thing that we see is that God has always, from the beginning of Israel, preserved a remnant. He's always preserved a remnant. And, and Fourthly, we saw from the text that this remnant was based on grace, on grace, and because man as a whole and, and Israel as a nation had constantly rejected God, killed the prophets that God had brought to them, and rejected his message. And so any saving of any remnant throughout history was pure grace on God's behalf. And the fifth thing that I want you to see from last week, and we'll transition this into this week is that the reason, and we'll read verses 7 through 10 in a moment, but the reason that the majority of Israel is rejected 
has been rejected by God um, uh, will, is, is because God has not elected them. God has not set them aside. So let's read the verses here in 7 through 10. What then? What Israel is seeking, it's not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them, and let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Now, we're not going to jump all into the controversy that is here, because if you've been with us, uh, we spent a lot of time in Romans chapter 9. If you haven't been with us, I would say go back and listen to those uh, sermons in chapter 9. But I do want to point out just a couple of things here, uh, starting uh, up in verse 2 of chapter 11. Paul says, God has not rejected his people, notice the qualification here, whom he foreknew. And, and one of the things that we talked about back in Romans chapter 8 was this word foreknew, uh, the best translation of this was those whom God had set His covenantal love on beforehand. Those whom God had set His covenantal love on beforehand. And then as we have worked our way through this, um, and as we look at verses 7 through 10, uh, we see two reasons why Israel is not part of the elect, is not part of God's fold, and the two reasons to us seem contradictory, but the Bible speaks of them going along in the same uh, line, in the same uh, trajectory. And the first reason is this, is because they have rejected God, or in this, in this text, in this context, they have rejected the Messiah. Notice in verse 7 it says they haven't obtained it. Lo- notice back in verse chapter 9, verse 32, it's talking about their, the rejection of, of Israel and why they haven't obtained um, salvation, the, why they haven't obtained righteousness. And it says in verse 32, Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stones. And so we see one is that they, uh, they, they did not receive, they were not brought in because they did not pursue it by faith. The second thing we see is God's action in this. And you can't read these verses. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to not see and ears to not hear down to this very day. Uh, the second thing that we see is that, is that God uh, was at work in not allowing the shackles to be left, to be taken off their eyes or the the, the deafness to be taken off of their ears. And we even see in, in chapter 10, when we were talking about the eyes and the ears, and it talks about in, in chapter 10, um, verse 18. Notice this, but I say, talking about Israel, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and the words to the ends of the world. So what we see is that the Israelites in Paul's day, they're they're not hearing, they're not seeing. There is a remnant, but in whole, they're they're, they're not seeing, they're they're not hearing. And we see that God's at work in this somehow. Now this gives a very controversial uh, point. And again, we're not going to go all the way down the road here, but, but there's something important 
that I want you to see. And I want to continue on. Notice in verse 8, when Paul is talking about the blindness and the deafness, he says, he's quoting the Old Testament, and, and he says, down to this very day. So as Paul is writing this, and he's quoting the Old Testament, he said it was true then, and it's true now. And what we could say is that it's still true in our day, right? By and large, the, the, the massive number of Jewish of Israelites in the world are rejecting the Messiah. The last thing I want you to see before we kind of make this transition and see where is this going? Why is Paul talking about this again? Is I want you to notice in verse 9 and 10, look at what a miserable state that they are in. In verse 9 it says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Now when it talks here about their table become a snare and a trap, I think what the text is telling us, when it's talking about table, it's talking about blessing, common grace, uh, being able to sit down and, and to enjoy life. And, and, and we know people that are like this, right? That one of the reasons why they don't see their need for the gospel is because everything's going pretty well in their life. That their table... Their blessing becomes a snare and a trap. Not only is that a snare and a trap to Israel in in the life of Israel, but also the other thing that Paul tells us here, look in verse 10, let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So on one hand you have the table and the blessing, on the other hand you have the bent backs of those who would be working and trying to put forth effort to earn salvation, to become good enough to be led into the fold of God. And what we see that's going on with Israel is we see both of these spectrums, both of these extremes going on, and they're not able to see and they're not able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we read this and as we hear this, we should ask the question, why is God doing this? Is this it? Is this forever? Has there apostasy? Has there disobedience? God's plan, does this mean that it's, it's over for this nation? And what we'll see this morning, we will see that it's not. But I want to point to a couple of things before we, before we jump into this. If you put a finger in the book of Romans and... Turn with me over to the book of Matthew. We'll start in chapter 8, and then we'll turn over to chapter 22 in a moment. Let me see if I can get my... But in chapter 8, this, this account uh, in the life of Jesus may be uh, familiar with, to you, where there's a centurion, a Gentile, and he's come to Jesus, uh, and... Um, he is, uh, he's saying that his servant uh, is paralyzed and Jesus uh, is talking with him and is, uh, he's going to heal his servant. And, and, and at the end of this account, we have Jesus talking about this centurion's faith, faith. And notice what he says here. Notice this. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following. Notice this. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you, many will come from the east and the west 
and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is Jesus pointing to that the Israelites, his kinsmen, are rejecting the Messiah, and there are other people that are going to be brought into the table of Abraham. Uh, if, if that is not enough for us, if we go over to Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to, uh, chapter 21, I'm going to read uh, a more lengthy passage here, so just bear with me. But I want you to hear uh, what Jesus is doing. This is the, the parable of the landowner, uh, is, is what it's, many of you know this as. But in Matthew 21, starting in verse 33, Jesus is telling a parable. And he says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time had approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves, beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same to them. But afterwards, look at this, but afterwards he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Jesus is asking now the question to his audience. They said to them, He will bring those wretches to, wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Listen to this. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. And notice the response. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Again, another example of Jesus saying that you, Israel, have rejected the Messiah and I am bringing another people in because you have rejected Messiah. And so one of the questions that we have to ask in this text as we get to this point in, in history, as Paul is writing this, is that this is a valid question. Has God worked in such a way that this is the final rejection of the nation of Israel, of Israelites as a whole. This is why, this is the question that is in the mind of the reader when Paul pens verse 11 and it says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. And then we have Paul as a prophet here laying out what salvation history will look like, and notice what it is. It says, but their transgression, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So what Paul is saying here, what Paul is saying, and what the point of this whole passage that we're going to see this morning, is that in God's omnipotent, sovereign plan, what has happened is that 
He has come. He has chosen a people, Israel. He has given them the prophets, the patriarchs, the Old Testament. They continually reject the Messiah. And the plan of that is that when He sends His Son, they then reject Jesus. And as they reject the Messiah, His plan is that that rejection springs open the door for the Gentiles to come into the kingdom. And we see this in history, don't we? It is unfathomable probably to someone like Paul or to someone in this day and age when Paul was writing that you and I would be sitting here doing this. Unfathomable. We see the plan of God unfolding in history through what we are doing this morning. Now, not only this, but remember, Paul is answering the question, so is he done with his people? And the first part of that is he says, no, he's not done with his people. In fact, this has happened so the Gentiles can come in, and then what's going to happen, and we will unpack this, is that you and I, Gentiles, that as we come into the kingdom, we will make Israel jealous And at some point in the future, there will be a revival and the Israelites, the stupor and and the deafness will come off of them and they, there will be a, uh, we'll get to this later, there will be a large ingathering of a revival, if you will, amongst ethnic Israel that will lead us into the next part of history, salvation history. So what we see unfolded here is this massive plan of God in salvation history. Now, let's dig into this and look a little further. And as we look at this text, as we look at these verses, 12 and 15 parallel each other, and then 13 and 14 um, uh, is about Paul's place in this. So let's look at 12 and uh, 15. Paul uses an argument style here that he often uses where he argues from the lesser to the greater. And we see here in verse 12, it says, Now if their transgression, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, and I think there he's just repeating himself, notice this, how much more will their fulfillment be? Now I want to pause because this brings up a lot of questions in my mind. This, this took me to a lot of sources and a lot of places and a lot of wrestling. And I won't go into all of that, but I think there's something important here. So what we see is Paul is laying out this argument again, right? Their fall. Israel's fall, Israel's transgression means blessing. Uh, let me get the exact words here. It means riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles. Now, what is meant here by this word Riches. And I think this word riches simply means, I think it's evident from the text, I think it's easy to see, it means salvation. It means salvation. And brother and sister, I have been convicted this week, and even as we sang this morning, how often do I take this salvation for granted? How often... Am I guilty of not realizing that because of Jesus Christ, 
Because God sent His Son that me, a sinner, a sinner, not a person who does bad things, but a sinner through and through, it's who I am, it's what defines us, that God would show mercy on me and send His Son Jesus to die so that I might be reconciled to God if I place my trust in Jesus. Brother and sister, do you realize how rich you are? If you have placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, do you realize how rich you are? Just as a simple word of reminder, I want to walk through just real quickly, just to turn back over to Romans chapter 8, and that if you've placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, there is now therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus uh, from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Not only that, but look at verse 15. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And then in verse 28, the great section here, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who will separate you from the love of Christ? I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus. This, if you are a believer, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, it's yours. Oh, the riches. Oh, the undeserving riches that God has bestowed upon His children. Does this sink in? And so here comes the problem. The problem is that Paul doesn't leave it there in verse 12, does he? Paul talks about if if this has happened so the Gentiles can come in, the riches for the Gentiles. Notice the wording that's used. How much more? And to be honest, I'm not 100% sure what this means. So what he's saying is, If Israel's falling away means riches for the Gentiles, how much more when they come back will their fulfillment mean? And I get they're coming back, but the part I don't get is the how much more. So I'm going to take a stab. A lot of theologians and pastors have taken a stab, and so I'm going to take a stab, but in me taking a stab... Uh, I want to keep two things in mind. I want to stay in the text and the context of Romans 11. And the first thing that you've got to see, and there's a first thing that you've got to see is that there is a a parallel. And the parallel to this verse is verse 15. So you you can see it again in verse 15. If their rejection is reconciliation of the world or riches to the world, what will their acceptance be? You see the parallel. But life from the dead. This doesn't help a whole lot. This phrase, life from the dead, is tricky. 
But that's what we're looking for. What does Paul mean? The much more here is life from the dead. And so what does this mean? And the first thing that we've got to see in trying to uncover what this means is that we have to understand who it is that Paul is talking to in verses 12 and 15. And it's easy. His audience here is the Gentiles. Look in verse 13. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. (laughs) So his audience here is Gentiles. Now... I think the best way to interpret this passage is to look ahead in chapter 11. And let's look ahead at verses 25 and 26 in chapter 11. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Notice this, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in And so all Israel will be saved. And so what I think we have here is that these verses are explaining to us what this life from the dead phrase is. Because we have, notice, until the fullness of Gentiles come in, then, then all Israel will be saved. Now again, this is a very controversial verse and we're not going to unpack it today. Um... But however, you see the movement here and you see the parallel between 12, 15 and this. That, there's, that Paul is, is talking about the same subject here. And so what I think it is talking about here is this. That he is saying, he is talking about salvation history and he says we are in a point in history where the Jews have rejected the Messiah and it's led to the Gentiles coming in and that has proven riches. How much more? Once the full number of Gentiles have come in, so notice that, full numbers come in, then Israel will be saved. How much more of a blessing will that be for you Gentiles? And I think, I think what Paul is talking about here, and I want to put it in modern day, what would happen this morning if, if Gary and my cell phone just started ringing off the hook, so much so that we answered it in service, and it was Avi Snyder on the other line who came and spoke to us. And Avi is saying to us, Gary, Lewis, I, I, you just won't believe it. You just won't believe it. It's happening. It's happening. There's a massive revival taking place among my people right now, and there are hundreds of thousands of Israelites who are being saved by the message of the gospel. What would happen in your soul this morning? I think what would happen in our soul this morning is that we would say, yes, God's word is true. He has, he has done it. He is doing it. We are this much closer to glory. This is where a lot of commentators get into trouble is by talking about how close to glory we'll be at that point. And all I want to say is we're closer But think about that. Think about that. And so think about what it would do to your faith when you see God's plan being unfolded like this. And so I think what Paul is saying here when he says, how much more would their inclusion mean? I think what he would say is, there's two points. Is that, look, you see my word going forth. Your faith is strengthened. It is happening. You are in a new era. It is Bad English, much more better era. And 
And the end is in sight. The end is in sight of what God is doing in history that we see in the book of Revelation where around the throne of God a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be worshiping God our Father. So Paul, Paul as he looks at this and as he prophetically is laying this out, Paul has some questions to answer himself. If we, and don't, don't turn here for the sake of time, but in Acts chapter 13, let me read you, starting in verse 44. But the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began, con- the bad kind of jealousy here, and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Which is an Old Testament quote. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the whole word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and leading men of the city and instigated a prosecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so what you might think is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, is done with the Jews. Do you see how you could come to that conclusion from the life of Paul? But what contradicts that is that we see that Paul, in this letter, many times in tears and in agony about the state of his people. And so we say, well, Paul, why does this concern you? You're the apostle to the Gentiles. What does this have to do with what you're doing? Notice in verse 13, and 14, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch them I am speaking, uh, then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow, my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Paul is extremely concerned about the Jews. Paul is extremely concerned about God's chosen people. What Paul is telling us here, it is that in many ways, it is the reason that he is doing what he is doing. It's the reason that he is spreading the gospel to the Gentiles is because the Holy Spirit has given him the knowledge that it is through salvation going to the Gentiles that God's people will be brought back in. You see what Paul is doing here? And so Paul is not anti-Semitic. Paul is not against the Jewish people because they've rejected him as his Messiah. He just doesn't do it like the way we would do it. Think about it. If you saw the, the Jews' rejection of the Messiah as strongly as Paul saw it, in our flesh, what would we want to do? We want to round up the troops. Call all the disciples in. We've got to have a campaign to Israel. We don't have time to go to the Gentiles We've got another plan here. And we're devising and we're scheming and this sort of thing. But Paul, Paul tells us here in this mysterious 
insight into what God is doing, he's saying, no, 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 God has a plan. God has not rejected his people. And God's plan is unfolding throughout history. And he will bring his people to himself. And so the main point here is this. Is that there is a plan that God has. That God is not haphazardly, emotionally reacting to history. But God has a plan of salvation that is unfolding and is continuing to unfold today. Do you see this? You can't read this scripture and come to any other conclusion but that God is, and I don't know if this is a word either, but I'm going to use it because I like it. He is purposing. He has a purpose, and He is enacting that purpose as the sovereign God of the universe. Brothers and sisters, As we look at this, and as we look at this character of God, and as Paul is, is laying this out before his readers, I want to ask you if you have the kind of confidence in God that Paul has in God. Do you have the kind of confidence in God that when things seem to be going awry, when everything seems to be going against the plan of God, against the promises in the Scripture, that the trust and the anchor and the motivation and the confidence to keep going is in the fact that we serve a God that is sovereignly purposing things in the universe and that if we lay our lives down in service to Him, God will use us to bring about those purposes of the universe. Do you trust in this? This is where we're headed. The gospel does not call us to laissez-faire, um, comfortable type Christianity. I, I think too many times as people, we are prisoners of the moment and we get caught up in the moment in our life and in this time of history and what Paul is doing here is forcing us to step back and look at the bigger plan of salvation. And what we see from this text is that you and I have a place and a purpose in salvation history. So this life that you are living is not, is not all about you and your personal happiness. This life that we're living is about our place in God's plan and us laying down our life in service to Him so that His ultimate purpose will be fulfilled. And we see when troubles and hardships come, I wonder how you react to them. One of the things that I love about, one of the many things that I love about having a godly wife is that we were, um, we, we were out walking uh, the other day and we were talking about a, you don't need to know the details, but uh, I was saying, what if this happened? Right? And it, something beyond our control. What if, this, it, what if this happened? And those of you who have found a, a godly wife have found a good thing. Because a godly wife will tell you something like this. Well, then that must mean that that's what God has for us. 
She didn't say this part, but it means so, Lewis, you put your big boy britches on, you hope in God, and you keep moving. Do we interpret life in this way? Now, do we look at hardships and trouble this way? Don't take lightly the context of this passage. There were Israelites who were rejecting the Messiah. It was their sin in rejecting the Messiah, and they were being cast away. It's in the middle of this that Paul is able to still stand firm and says, Our God still reigns. His ways are beyond your ways. Who are you to be a counselor to God? Who can stand and give advice to this God? And so I want to end. I want to end with just asking you two things. Um, One would be this. One implication of this would be, do you live life in such a way that you... So let's just pretend for a minute, but I think we should be living this kind of life here. But let's just pretend that, boom, you were, uh, you, your job took you to Israel. Are you living the kind of life that would make Jewish people jealous? If you need to know what jealousy looks like, I will loan you my three-year-old for a couple of days. She gave me the perfect illustration on the way here this morning. She dressed beautifully. She wanted to wear these certain shoes that are too big for her, but they're new and shiny and have heels on them. And you know what she says to me as we're walking down? She says, Autumn doesn't have these kind of shoes. (laughs) Thanks, sweetheart. (laughs) So what does it mean that we live the kind of life to where Jewish people would be jealous? Brothers and sisters... We are taking full advantage of the gift that was given to them. All the blessings there seen in the Old Testament, the Messiah, the Holy Spirit, the prophecies, we've got it. And so we should be living life in such a way that a Jewish person who looks at us, it provokes them to jealousy, the good kind of jealousy, because they want what we have and what we have is theirs and is offered to them. So do you love Jesus in such a way? Is Jesus such the cornerstone of who you are that it would rub it would rub a Jewish person the wrong way? Now let's come back to Signal Mountain or Chattanooga or wherever you are living. Are you loving Jesus? Is Jesus so radically changed you that you're loving him in such a way that others take notice? And and in our modern language, we may not use the word jealous, but they're going to call you weird. In many ways, we're a weird group of people. I won't go into all the reasons why, but one of the reasons should be is because we're countercultural in our love for Jesus. The second thing that I want to end with is this. And I think I'm right in being able to say this at the end. Are you confused about the course of your life? One of the things that I love doing, my, my nephews are really, really good baseball players. Um, I mean, really, my, one of them's playing Division One, the other ones will play somewhere in college, and uh, I was never any good at baseball, but the younger nephew uh, can't hit a change-up, at least my change-up. 
So what I love to do, if you know anything about baseball, a changeup is, and I'm going to get corrected on this, but when you, you know, a fastball is expected, and the changeup is that the ball comes in a lot slower. And it's hilarious when you throw my nephew a change, when I throw my nephew a changeup, because I'll go and I'll just throw as hard as I can. He'll just be hitting the ball, and then all of a sudden I'll throw this changeup, and he swings, and then the ball comes, and I die laughing. We all get a kick out of it. You know. um, that is our Easter and Thanksgiving treat, me making him swing and almost fall down. I also provoke him to want to hit it really hard by giving him a hard time and then throw the change up. That's the other way you have to switch up to as an uncle. How often do you feel, or you may be this morning, do you feel like life has thrown you a change up? In baseball terms, batters will be sitting on a fastball. They want to see that fastball because they, that's the pitch they want to hit. That's what they're looking for. And instead of getting that fastball, they get a changeup that comes slower. That if they know it's coming, they should just be able to crush. And has that been you with your life? Are you in the middle of something right now that life has thrown you a changeup? And brothers and sisters, if this is you, I want the message, the, the, what we see about the character of our God in this passage to give you comfort this morning that as you've been thrown this change up in life, don't despair. The Word of God has not failed. The promises we read about earlier in Romans 8 are yours. God is working. God is purposing. God is up to something in your life. So Christian, take heart. Don't, don't see that change up coming at you and you swinging and missing as feeling like that it's over for you. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And so I want to give you just a couple of things just, just to end with. And one of the reasons why I'm so thankful for this passage and that we serve a God who gave us the written word is that if you don't read God's Word, if you don't understand the, the, the worldview of the Scriptures about a big God who's in control, who is loving you, and who even uses suffering to, to bring about His purposes, then your world is going to crumble when suffering comes. And so what you, we have to do is be encouraging one another to get in the Word. We've got to be encouraging one another to get in the Word. We've got to daily and sometimes hourly recite the promises of God to us that we find in the Bible. We have to constantly remind ourselves that this world is not all about me and my fulfillment, but this, this world is about God and His glory. And so when the curveballs come, many ways, many times, that's God's way of positioning us to get us into the place to where we can take those next steps that, uh, that He has for us for our usefulness for the kingdom. So instead of saying, oh me, we need to be saying, oh boy. And that God almost always works in unexpected ways, and so we've got to take heart. And, and lastly, is your joy in the right place? Constantly asking ourselves, is my joy in the right place. When I get overwhelmed and down and out, nine times out of ten, it's because my joy is not in the right place. And so we've got to evaluate that. So 
what I want you to see through this text is that yes, this text is vital, it's important, it tells us something about the history of God, the salvation history, but for you personally, you're a part of it if you're a believer. And for us to be a part of this, and for us to be effective for the kingdom, we've also got to know the the characteristics of this God that we serve in this Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, God, I, it is my earnest prayer and my earnest expectation that as we continue through this book of Romans, when we get to the therefore in chapter 12, that we will be ready to spring into action. That our confidence will be in you. Our confidence will be in that you have a plan, that you are working out that plan, that you have a purpose, that your word never fails, and that we, that becomes the solid rock and the solid ground that we stand on so that when we get to the therefore in chapter 12 it is just the natural implications of what we've been reading and studying and that we are like parched ground desiring to just soak up any of the rain that comes in the remaining chapters of this book of Romans God I pray that you would be preparing our hearts for that this morning. God, again, we thank you. We thank you. We are amazed at your grace. We are amazed at your mercy. That you would love us. That we are here. The gospel has gone to the Gentiles. God, mold our hearts and mold our minds to love you with all that we are. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.